The folks from Deloitte are back with us on CKNW Weekend Mornings. We've had Marty Weintraub join us a couple of times over the last few months as they've introduced some new surveys in 2020. We've talked with Deloitte about the future of the mall and also about the future of retail. And today it's a pleasure to welcome Leslie Peterson to the program to talk about the latest Deloitte study, The Future of Hospitality, Uncovering Opportunities to Recover and Thrive in the new normal. Leslie is based here in Vancouver, joining us this morning from Edmonton. Good morning, Leslie. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, good morning, Phil. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, this is quite a complex study, and it begins with a with a, with a, a, perhaps a review of, of the most painfully obvious part of the process, which is recognizing the, the sort of on-the-ropes situation of the hotel and hospitality business right now. And that's a smart place to begin, because that's the truth, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's uh, no surprise that... Uh, the hospitality sector has certainly been the hardest hit uh, by the impacts of COVID. And uh, thinking about how they can reimagine their business as they look forward is going to be really key to recovery. Right. And so you talk about in this report, you talk about how in uh, in bygone days, the hospitality business used to be a lot about brands and uh, things have changed. So what's going to need to be changed if, uh, if once upon a time ago, it was all about uh, the the brand names of the hotels? Uh, what has was if we're going to begin with that? How do you begin? Well, I think brands are still very important. I think the the balance that that these organizations have to strike is how are they still able to deliver on, on their brand promise, whether that's high touch. Uh, you know, customer um, customer engagement, uh, and then also balancing that now with the requirements for um, the increased in uh, increased safety requirements that people are expecting as they venture out, uh, venture into hotels, and looking at how they want to stay there. Um, hotels are going to uh, need to deliver um, consistency across how they engage with the customer at every point of interaction uh, across their journey, what from the booking right through to the time that they depart. Mm-hmm. And I had it kind of backwards too, Leslie, and I apologize for that. Yesterday, hotels were all about spaces, and now hotels mm-hmm. are all about brand. Branding being more important now than the spacious aspect of hotels that used to be the real drawing card. And I wanted to throw in one other question to you, because it really has changed the dynamic of the hospitality industry, and that's hotel groups, Leslie, competing with individuals and more organized groups in Airbnb. For sure, and, and I think um, you know what people are going to appreciate is brand. Uh, you know, brand will have an impact in terms of people's confidence. Uh, in the desire to, to to stay in an organization, so you think about the top brands, you know, hotels. You know, they're known for not to mention their experience, but you can trust that brand. Right. And so the trust part of that becomes really important. You think about Airbnb. Um, you know, obviously that's a newer form of engagement and and um, uh, to get people to you know experience travel and, and try new things. Um, I think as we think about you know the brands of organizations and trust, regardless of whether you're a hotel or an Airbnb. B&B, it's going to be important in terms of demonstrating that you've got the customer's health and safety in mind. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because with Airbnb, Leslie, and you can back me up or disagree with me on this one, I think it's generational. I'm, I'm a hotel guy. A big part of wherever I go on, <laughs> on, on any vacation is where I stay. It matters. A lot of other people <laughs> prefer to go and stay in someone's home rather than in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a predictable environment like a hotel. They'd rather go to a neighborhood and stay, you know, mix it up with the folks. So, And, and I find people who prefer the Airbnb B&B experience to be, generally speaking, of a younger age group than the hotel crowd. Do you find that too? Well, I think yeah, I think it's a general statement. Um, I don't disagree with you. Uh, although, having said that, I would say that uh, you know certainly some of my friends and colleagues, and, and certainly I'm not in the younger generation, uh, the younger demographic. They're very open to staying in those types of environments because they want to be part of the community. Sure. They want to uh, exist in it. They want to go and shop for the groceries and cook their own food. Yep. Uh, those types of things. So I think you know it depends on the type of traveler that you are. I think less, mm. less about the generational piece, but how you like to travel and what you like to experience when you travel. No question. But I think back to your uh, point about trust. However, it's much easier mm-hmm. for travelers in general. Again, we're generalizing here, Leslie, but it would be much easier, I think to convince travelers to return to trustworthy, international, reputable brands than to individuals' homes, which may or may not represent varying degrees of sanitizing and so on. Yeah, I think it's about how visible um, individuals or organizations make it, whether you're an Airbnb or a hotel. So I think what becomes important is uh, the level of engagement that you have with your uh, customer base um, before they even join your, come to your property. So they go onto your website, you've got some very clear guidelines around how you're actually looking to ensure their safety, uh, the different types of cleaning procedures, uh, what they can expect when they show up, um, what is it going to feel like to be in their hotel rooms. Um, and as long as there is clear uh, visibility to what that is in a very proactive way, because I think it's about being proactive with the customers and understanding their mindset around what their fears are. And then as they look to do that, how do you actually demonstrate that through the entire experience? So you have to actually walk the talk here. And if they don't see that demonstrated uh, through um, through that experience, then you know they may make a different decision next time. Well, then there's no question. There's lots of alternatives. That's the other thing about the the uh, the necessity to sort of be on point here, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, customers will remember the brands and the organizations that had their best interest in mind and really took care of them. And they'll remember that. And that will, as the, organ- as, as the economy starts to come back, I think that then you'll start to see the gravitation towards those, those that, that responded in an appropriate way. Our guest is Leslie Peterson from Deloitte. We're talking about the new Deloitte survey on the future of hospitality and hotels. And Leslie, by way of summarizing the first half of our conversation, yesterday, hotels were all about spaces. Today, hotels are all about brands and the many faces of one ho- of hotel chains. However, the report goes on to say hotels will need more than brands to differentiate in the future. Tomorrow's hotels will need to be a lot more about people. Now, I'd like you to flesh that one out for us because the impression is that hotels are already supposed to be all about people. So what do they need to finesse even more? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Sterling. Um, I think, you know, if we think about, uh, you know, the customer touch, you know, the baseline is going to be, you know, it's a requirement. You need to demonstrate that you've got, you know, the basics, um, ensuring that their health and safety is there. But as you start to take a look at, you know, once you've got 
that, clear, that, that cleared away. Um, how do they leverage their loyalty program to continue to engage with uh, the customers and, and the patrons that they've already had and, and to, uh, joining and participating in their space and the experience at their facilities and looking at ways to use that loyalty to create different types of offerings um, and creating a different type of an experience. Um, for more of the light and casual travel, um, you know, how do you start to get those individuals in the door? And so we're starting to see some very interesting um, uh, examples of innovations that hotels are taking on. So as we look back at the early days of COVID, hotels were offering space for the medical workers yes. to, um, you know, rest and recover and, and using the facilities to, to help to support that with respect to the space. Smart mode. Um, now we're starting to see... Yeah, for sure. And so now we're starting to see uh, where they're considering offering day rates, for example, uh, for workers that uh, may be working at a home where they've got, you know, two, two of two adults working in the same facility need some privacy and some focus. What might that mean in terms of offering day rates for those individuals or even for like a staycation for a local? family, if they don't have, say, the heat of the summer, access to a swimming pool? Is there an opportunity for them to offer those day rates so people can come, enjoy the facilities for the day, and just engage in a different way? Because the, the, the vacancy or, the, or the, the occupancy in the hotels at one point was like around the 10% mark. That's and right. now they're sitting at about 40%. So there's still lots of rooms. Um, you know, that are sitting vacant. And so thinking more creatively about how they actually look at bringing them in with different experiences, I think is going to be key for the sector. Leslie, I've got a quote here in the report attributed to a guy named David who's identified as a frequent business traveler. Quote, corporate hotels, they're not awful, but they're forgettable. Nothing stands out. They all feel and look the same. You can't tell them apart and you're happy to leave. (laughs) This is this is a, a pretty blunt assessment, but it's the way a lot of people feel about a lot of hotels. Uh, well, that's that's um, you know an interesting, a very interesting perspective. Um, I think you know as as we start to move to uh, you know more of a digital age, you know people are interested in digital technologies and and looking at how. Um, you know, they can use that to maybe create a different type of an experience. And so, um, you know, it's an interesting statement, you know, forgettable. Um, I, I guess it depends on what you remember. And so if a hotel is interested in my best interest and they're serving my needs, regardless of what they are, I think, you know, that's going to create some followership for sure. So that's right. It's, it's an interesting it's an interesting point of view. Yeah. And now as we look ahead to the future of the industry, you talk about the various mm-hmm. descriptions of individuals who are going to succeed or find employment with the industry, particularly as needs change and pivot is the big buzzword of the pandemic and the hotel and hospitality industry under necessity is pivoting as well, mm-hmm. Leslie. And you talk mm-hmm. about people, uh, you talk about hotel groups hiring curators, for example. What does that mean? Well, I mean, what they're looking at here is how do you create a different type of experience for someone? So, you know, for example, um, you know, hotels may look at offering, um, you know, an online cooking um, cooking session with one of their Michelin-starred chefs, for example. Sure, yeah. And so looking again at sort of creating, curating an experience, right? So, so you think about things that might intrigue people, um, whether or not there's maybe a behind-the-scenes look at or something along those lines. And it doesn't apply to just hotels. If you think about, you know, even sports, um, you know, sporting events, um, you know, e- even restaurants. What are some of the unique, interesting things that they're doing to try and create people to come back 
into their facilities, recognizing there may be some trepidation um, when we look at, you know, only, you know, 13 to 15 percent of people feel comfortable going into a restaurant. So what do you need to do in order to um, help people uh, do that? And so by creating a different kind of experience is going to be key. Yeah, exactly. And that's where you come right back full circle to the whole notion of trust, don't you, Leslie? Because in terms of assessing as uh, hotels and hospitality and service industries are are relentlessly doing, assessing the concerns of their customers, uh, obviously, Mm -hmm. anxiety is an enormous factor right now that they're dealing with. And one offset to that Mm -hmm. is creating an atmosphere or an environment where people not only feel welcome, but they feel that they can relax and trust that while they're experiencing Mm -hmm. this hotel or this restaurant or resort or whatever, they're not going to get sick. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And I think it's, you know, when you look at um, our our, um, uh, consumer tracker survey, one of the things that we highlighted is that 48% of people are very concerned about their own well-being, but more importantly, 60% of them are concerned about their family as well. Yes. And so, um, you know, that certainly drives the behaviors around ensuring that they're taking, doing the right things to ensure that they're, that they're keeping themselves safe as well as their family safe. And as we start to look at, you know, the hotels and the restaurants, it's also important about recognition of employee safety as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if the employees are safe and they're doing the right things, they're incented to come to work. And then also you can see that translating through how the customers might feel safe as well. Well, of course, and that's attitude as much as anything else. If you're comfortable, it, your employees are are uh, uh, well-adjusted individuals working in an environment they consider to be extremely safe, they're going to be relaxed. Mm-hmm. They're going to be a little bit more welcoming and a lot more mm-hmm. helpful in terms of settling it down people's anxieties when they come into the establishment for the first time. Well, that's exactly right, because these are the frontline workers. These are the people that, you know, the customers and the patrons are actually seeing um, and and then demonstrating their behaviors um, and illustrating that and everything that they're doing becomes really important. And and I don't know, I'm sure some of your viewers or or listeners have been to, you know, some restaurants lately. I know certainly I have. And then just really being mindful in in, in the role that I play, of course, I'm very mindful about watching uh, what it is that they're doing and how they're engaging with the customers, whether that's, um, an online an, an online menu versus a paper menu. Sure. Um, you know how they're how they're using different types of cutlery, but also you know door opening, automatic, not automatic, those types of things. So all of that becomes really important. And some of it, of course, involves cost. And the smaller the enterprise, the more difficult it is to come up with the cash to make the modifications required to stay in the game. So uh, it, it really is the risk factor becomes a little more acute at that level too, doesn't it? Yeah, there's certainly, <clears throat> for these organizations, there's certainly operational and financial risk. Um, there's you know, new requirements in terms of what's going to be needed to ensure the safety of, of the customers that are, that are visiting you, whether in some cases it's, you know, everyone's seeing the plexiglass shields that are up between, um, you know, service providers and, and the customers themselves that cost money. Um, you think about um, you know, what happens with a, with a restaurant, for example, if you look at their supply um, and some of the suppliers that may be providing to them. And so if you're, you know, a steakhouse, for example, you know, when you hear about um, meatpacking plants, you know, developing a COVID, therefore, what does that mean to your supply? It ripples How right do down the chain, doesn't it? Yes, exactly no question right. about it. Exactly. Les, thanks very much for this. We appreciate your joining us, taking time out of your long weekend, especially on the road in Edmonton, the home of hockey, as it <laughs> turns out, to, uh, to join us with this new survey. Thanks very much and enjoy the rest of your long weekend.
It was my pleasure, Sterling. Thank you. There's Leslie Peterson from Deloitte, and you can find all of the survey at Deloitte.com on the future of hospitality. So we continue to unravel the we scandal. Mr. Trudeau and others in his government testified before the Commons Committee uh, earlier this week, including the Kielberger brothers, Craig and Mark, uh, talking to the Commons Committee about the uh, inner workings of we at the charity and their relationship with the government of Canada. All of that aside, one of the things we have found this week is the nature of business activity uh, conducted by We Charity, and there are multiple layers and layers of corporate and charitable enterprises. Uh, Someone paid nearly 200 people to promote positive We Charity stories on Google, and we also learned this week the Trudeau government handed over ownership of personal data from anyone applying for a student grant to We Charity. Our next guest says, you know, this stuff just does not pass the smell test well at all. In fact, it's borderline highly unethical. Our next guest joining us from Toronto is Robert Burko. Mr. Burko is CEO of the marketing agency Elite Digital. Robert Burko, good morning and welcome. Good morning to you, sir. It's great to have you with us, Robert. Let's talk a little bit about this, uh, the, the practice, first of all, the, the headline story in the National Post, which quoted you, by the way, uh, reacting to it, uh, talked about people, 200 of them, promoting positive We Charity stories on Google. Is this, uh, uh, in business, Robert, the equivalent of my opening a restaurant and having my sister-in-law post a rave review on Yelp? So it's very, very similar to exactly that. I mean, it, it sort of crosses, as I mentioned in the article, it crosses an ethical line because if you open that restaurant and you go get your family members and your close friends to say, hey, I know you haven't eaten at my restaurant yet, but can you please go and give me five stars on every review site? Right. Or if you launch a new product on Amazon and you know, we all buy stuff off Amazon and we all look at that ratings, for you to go and say, hey, can everyone go and call my product the greatest product ever right. and leave me five-star reviews? It's, it's basically akin to that. Um, essentially, it's trying to game the system, and, and inherently, you know when you do that, that you're not really playing by the rules, and Google itself has outlined the rules, and, and we know this goes against them. So what, uh, technically, Robert, thank you for that, first of all, and, and let's talk now about what rules were broken, and does Google enable breaking of their own rules? How does that work? So we have to take a step back, right? And I don't want to get technical, but fundamentally, it boils down to a question of, do we understand how Google works? Uh-huh. Now, to the, to the average person out there, here's what they know. They type something into Google, and literally milliseconds later, all these results show up, and most people, they never get to page two. Right. Most of your people listening right now probably don't even know page three exists on Google. So whatever comes up first is what we see. Now, there's no one sitting in the office at Google saying, oh, Sterling just searched for Robert Burko. Let's show him what we, you know, the results. There's no individual sitting there. It's all algorithm-based, right? It's right. computers figuring this out. And like any algorithm, any computer program, there's ways to say, oh, here's how the, how the algorithm works, and here's sort of how I can you know, manipulate it and possibly use it to my advantage. In the digital marketing world, um, the way you sort of control where your website shows up, it's called search engine optimization. Exactly. And, yep, and there's, a, there's good ways to do it. There's good, highly ethical ways. At Elite Digital, we help people across the country do this properly. It happens to be called white hat SEO. And then there's the dark side of this, the underbelly of it, which is called black hat SEO. And that's where you really break the rules. And Google most certainly does not want you to do that. 
And when Google catches you, uh, they do not pull their punches, and there are serious consequences. That's because Google makes money, and I would imagine, Robert, I don't know any numbers, but I would imagine a considerable amount of money every year uh, getting people to pay them for this search engine optimization. So when I punch in, uh, you know, a marketing expert, I'm going to get Robert Burko at the top of my Google's uh, search results. And you pay for that. I certainly hope you do. I'm, I certainly hope you do, and I'm very proud of that. It's taken me a long time to get there. But, yeah, I mean, the key thing to understand is when we all use Google, everybody listening right now uses Google, and no one is paying Google for that, right? We all use Google for free. Sure. But the way Google makes money is by selling ads. Now, in order to sell ads, Google needs to make sure their search engine is useful. So from Google's standpoint, if everyone started getting really lousy results on Google, we'd all jump to another search engine. Mm-hmm. That would be bad for Google. So Google wants to make sure it shows you the most relevant results possible for your search, and that's a good thing for Google, and it's a good thing for us as the users of Google. Yep. But if people try to trick the system and say, I'm going to show this, this article, this amazingly positive story because I'm trying to break the rules, then Google's algorithm shows you that, but it's not necessarily what makes the most sense, and that's sort of the underbelly of this where people do unethical things to try to put a story in front of you that if Google catches them, they're going to get in trouble. But up until the point that they get caught, they sort of reap the benefits of breaking the rules. Interesting. So the subheader on the, t- the story that brought us to you in the first place, Robert, the Google manipulation campaign where it was used to boost the visibility of two positive stories about we while burying any potential negative coverage. And again, they paid nearly 200 people to get involved in this campaign on Google. So do we know how much the individuals were paid and what exactly were they supposed to do? Yeah, so I mean, there's parts of the story that we know and don't know. We, we fundamentally know this happened, and we understand, you know, at a very macro level, we get it, right? And we've all done it. Everybody searches for their name on Google to see what comes mm-hmm. up, and certainly mm-hmm. you don't want a negative story, so pushing the bad stuff down, the good stuff up, we all understand that. Now, what they basically tried to do here, which basically I would never recommend to anybody at all, is they tried to get people to search on Google, click on this positive story, and then spend some time on the resulting website with the idea being, if we can show Google that this link is popular, look at all the people clicking on this amazing story. Sure. Google thinks that's popular, rises it up in the rankings, and as soon as that good article goes up, the bad article goes down, and basically that's what they were trying to do was push the bad stuff down, rise the good stuff to the top. It's no different than Google uses a lot of social signals um, to figure out what they should rank. So if everybody starts talking on Twitter, for example, about a certain story, Google thinks it's important and moves that up. It's essentially the same thing that happened here. Okay. And so, of course, this is clearly uh, a policy. This is, well, okay, we're going to this, our next step in, uh, in bringing our brand to even more prominence is going to be the manipulation of Google. Uh, and were there other platforms that they attempted to do similar exercises on? Do you know, Robert? So we know on Wikipedia, there's some questionable things happening. If you, if you go to the We Charity pages on Wikipedia, there's some comments there from some editors saying someone should fact check this. It feels like this is sort of been orchestrated by the company. Now, all of this is speculation. We don't know. You know, it's possible someone other than We Charity did this. It's possible We Charity did it themselves. It's possible We Charity hired an agency who did not have proper ethical practices, and they did this. So we do not know. But is it possible that they were in a boardroom somewhere? saying, I don't like these bad stories that show up when I search for my name on Google. Please move these down and move these up. Could that have happened? Yes. Does it look like that happened? It does. Do we follow the paper trail all the way back to see who ordered it? 
We simply don't know. But the optics of this, alongside everything else, most certainly don't look good. This would be frowned upon by Google, frowned upon by myself and others in the industry, because there is very much a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And if what happened and what it looks like happened happened, this is certainly not good. Well, again, according to you from the National Post, as a veteran of the industry, I frown on all of this. And I suspect your peers across the digital marketing industry would be sharing that sentiment uh, this morning, Robert. Absolutely. I mean, I've done this close to for 18 years now. And fundamentally, you know, my clients come to me and they say, listen, Rob, we want to rank well on Google and we want to do positive things. And I say, great, no problem. We can happily help you with that. However, there is an ethical way to do it, right? The way you get good reviews for your restaurant is by having good service, by offering good food. The way you can build your website and showcase all the good you're doing in the world, there are ways to do this properly. So when myself and other experts in the digital marketing industry look at this, we say, wow, they could have done this properly. Okay, they could have just let the good work they were doing speak for itself and sort of happen, let things happen organically. But to say, let's aggressively try to manipulate this kind of taints the entire thing. Interesting. And of course, uh, the, you know, the proof is in the pudding in terms of the reaction to a lot of corporate sponsors of this enterprise, uh, many of whom have already withdrawn, uh, thinking TELUS here in, in the West. And of course, uh, Doug Ford's government of Ontario disconnected from we uh, just a couple of days ago. In conversation with Robert Burko, CEO of Elite Digital, an online marketing firm. Mr. Burko has been in the business for close to 20 years, and he's talking to us this morning about the We Charity as we peel back more and more layers of the onion of this much multi-layered enterprise, some charitable, some not so much. Uh, We're learning today about a website, or recently at least, due to the very good work of Brian Lilly over at Post Media, Rob. Uh, The government launched a website, and I'm on it right now, called IWantToHelp.org. And if you go to the site, it's very glossy. It's got the Canada logo, empowering students, supporting communities. Welcome to the Canada Student Service Grant. It encourages you, the visitor, to uh, apply and you know, up for these grants, it explains how you could earn from one to five thousand dollars once you complete your qualifying volunteer uh, hours and so on. It's very polished. Why apply for the program, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very encouraging of your participation. So lots of people clearly have signed up. So tell us about what happens to this information because the headline story was, according to Post Media, Trudeau government handed we. A personal data gold mine. How so, Rob? So you got to remember, these days, and we have to know this going into the story, data is worth money, okay? The more you know about, about people at a large extent, the, the, the better it is for these organizations. So there is so much, so much incredible value in data. And what we're looking at here is basically when everybody signed up for the site and everybody, you, me, everybody listening, we all fill out registration forms all the time on sure. different websites. You bet. And the big, qu- for sure, we do it all the time. And the big question is, where does that data go? Yep. And more so than where does it go? Who's in charge of it? Who's in control of it? What are they doing with it? Are they ethical? Are they going to do good things? Are they going to safeguard it? One of the very first things I would say to everybody listening, and they're going to sort of roll their eyes after I say this, a lot of people who are listening probably have accounts on different websites. Okay? We all log into a million different things online. Our life is online these days. Mm-hmm. Most people generally excuse me, use the same password on a lot of different websites. 
And I bet people listening right now are like, oh my goodness, how does this guy know that I use the exact same password on all these different websites? <laughs> now, let me tell you right away, if you are listening to this and you are like, how does this guy know what I do? Please stop. You've got to start changing your passwords because the problem is not every site that you hand over your data to it has the integrity that we want it to have. Sure. And the problem is if your data is out there and fundamentally all of our data is out there, we have to know where it's going. We want to know where it's going. I would bet very few people read the privacy policies on all the websites they visit. They no just, one click, ever they just click agree or accept and move on, don't they? A hundred percent. No one has time to read these terms of service. So I get it. And that's fine. But we have to trust the other people on the other end are using our data wisely. Right. Now, when the government hands over data to an organization, we hope they've done their due diligence. Right. At Elite Digital, we get audited to make sure our data protection policies are top tier and best in class. Mm-hmm. And we're very strict about that. Not all companies are. So when the government hands over all this data, we have to ask, well, where is it going? And more so than that, what country is it going to? Because the story that you're talking about right now results in our Canadian data actually residing in the U.S. Now, the U.S. has totally different privacy laws. Did people know their information was going to the U.S.? How do they feel about it? And what does that mean? So we live in a day and age where privacy is important and maybe at the same time privacy doesn't exist to the extent we want because our information is all out there. And potentially, based on what we're hearing, the government may have just handed it over. Well, Rob, how do, how, I suppose, I'm a little confused. All of a sudden, it didn't take long. It's early in the day. How did the information from Canadian young Canadians applying for the uh, student grant program for this volunteer thing to the government through WE, how did that information end up in the United States? Because Is it because WE has an American affiliate? They share databases? How did it get to the States? So great question. So what we're learning is basically very few companies sort of operate end to end on their own without using another third party, right? The digital world is an ecosystem of interconnected puzzle pieces, and that's how it works. And we all hear the term the cloud. My data is going to the cloud. Yeah, yeah. And most people, if you say, what is the cloud? They literally have no idea. Yes. I, ask, I have three little kids at home. I asked them the other day, what is the internet? And their responses were hysterical. Most people don't actually know what this is. Now, when we talk about the cloud, we're basically talking about a computer server sitting in a fancy data center somewhere. That's what we're talking about. Now, in this case, it looks like we, used in, we charity, used an American company to house some of the data. So although you were giving your data to, let's say, a Canadian organization, we charity endorsed by the Canadian government, because the service they were using was US-based, the data fundamentally ended up in the US. And that changes the game. That changes the laws that apply to it. That changes the regulations. So that's how sort of no one knew this was happening. And yet at the same time, it happened exactly that way. Do we have any evidence at all that the data was shared by anyone? And did anyone profit from the sharing of data if indeed that happened? So right now, we simply don't know. Right now, the story is sort of following the the bouncing ball to say, hey, the data was here. Here's what happened. We are all, as you mentioned earlier, there's so many layers to this story. No kidding. What we fundamentally know now is we charity was using this company in the U.S. Now, we have no reason to believe the company in the U.S. is doing bad things with it. They, they could be a very reputable company. Sure. They could be trustworthy. They could safeguard the data. So it's not a matter of fact of this is not a there was a security breach. No one should panic. That is not what happened. Okay. Up until this point, there has been no breach. We do not know if anything bad has happened. Right. All we know 
is that the, da- the data that was given is fundamentally now sitting somewhere in the U.S. with another company, and it's not like it's one person's data. It's a lot of data, and that, that matters. And it, doesn't, and, and it matters more not because what's happened so far with it, but what is going to happen and what could happen, and all of us as Canadians kind of need to be saying our privacy is important, and if the government is going to go and hand it over to someone, have they checked all the boxes and done their due diligence? If they have, fine. The data has to exist. If they haven't, I'd kind of like the bar to be a little bit higher. Well, and you know, uh, if there's one thing that has become painfully clear to all Canadians of all political persuasions, the government dropped the ball on this one in terms of checking boxes and the the obvious need to do due diligence. Uh, we were, you know, the we've seen f- uh, flustering civil servants and politicians stammering and yammering and and uh, trying to bluster their way through, not having done due diligence, and even when they were. Con- confronted by uh, sufficient evidence, they in, indulged and participated in the process and didn't recuse themselves. So there are a lot of balls been dropped and a lot of boxes possibly not checked here, which is why I suppose, Rob, so many of us are just flat out nervous about this stuff. Well, I think a lot of us are just left scratching our head. I mean, listen, the reality is if I have to go buy a new TV, I am reading every review. I'm looking at every spec. I am doing my unbelievable due diligence And that's a TV I'm buying. That's right. This was a very big program with lots at stake. And it was a program designed to do good. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that's the unfortunate part is the intentions of the program were good, but everything around it was bad. And where I'm annoyed is if they just would have done their due diligence, there is another way for this to play out that is very, very different. Because if they had done the same amount of research that I do when I'm buying a TV, maybe all these questions we're asking now would have been asked before. And then we're talking about something else. Absolutely. An email here from Todd as we've been talking. 30 seconds left to deal with his point. Todd says there needs to be a full investigation by the privacy commissioner, along with the ethics and the other people. He says they should get involved. Do you agree? I do. I mean, we have to. Our data is important. As Canadians, our data is important. Where's our data? How did it get there? And most importantly, what's happened has already happened. How do we prevent this from happening again? You know, at Elite Digital, we always talk about key learnings. And I want to know, this is a bad situation right now. What are the key learnings? Because we don't have a time machine. We can't go back in time. But what can we do as a, as a community, as a society, to make sure this kind of stuff simply does not happen again? Excellent stuff. Robert Burko, thank you so much for being with us today. We do appreciate your visit, and we must do this again. It was great fun, and you're a, a sharp guy to have on the radio. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. You too. Enjoy the rest of your long weekend. Civic holiday in Ontario. There's Rob Burko, CEO of Elite Digital. Joined on the line by Rob Williams, the sports editor of The Daily Hive. Rob, good morning. Hey, good morning, Sterling. How are you? I am well, thank you. 142 days we went without hockey or NHL hockey before it kicked in yesterday. Uh, Acute withdrawals felt across the nation. And I'll bet you those TV ratings yesterday, uh, beginning at what, 9 o'clock our time yesterday morning, Robin, going right till to almost 11 o'clock last night. I'll bet you those TV ratings were just gangbusters. Oh yeah, they must have been. Um, I, I know that the uh, the preseason or the uh, the exhibition games earlier in the week uh, set a record for Sportsnet. Uh, they'd never had uh, that many people tune into any of their preseason games before. Um, you know, especially especially the games involving Canadian teams. Um, the Toronto Maple Leafs are playing today. I'm yep. sure that'll that, that I mean it, it it'll have to set a record. Um, you know, there's there's so many people in this country that are 
that are just starved for hockey and and uh you know even without fans in attendance uh you know it was pretty Pretty captivating stuff yesterday, I must say. No question about it. I love the overtime in the Montreal game, a real NHL overtime where they actually went to the dressing room and took a break, had an orange, and came back and played <laughs> lots more. It was wonderful. I want to talk to you about an article you wrote prior to yesterday's uh, kickoff of the actual playoffs between uh, the exhibition games and the, the resumption of play. You wrote a piece entitled Hockey Fans Are Taking a Knee for Black Lives After the NHL didn't and you had photos of that I think the NHL must have seen that and a few other articles critical of them because yesterday I believe they more than compensated for what they didn't do during the exhibition games what did you think yeah no I, I thought I thought uh, yeah Matt Matt Dumba of the Minnesota Wild gave a you know incredibly powerful speech um, you know t- talking about Black Lives Matter and and um, and I think it's significant not just because you know it would have been significant in any sport, but I think it was especially significant in the sport of hockey because it's this is something that that hockey players don't do you know like uh, <laughs> in in the, in the sense that they rarely get involved in non hockey topics, true, especially if it's at all controversial mm-hmm. to some people or if it's political in nature. Um, so the fact that you had an NHL player uh, standing at center ice with a microphone and actually took a knee for the anthem, that's the first time that an NHL player has ever done that. Um, you look at the NBA, um, you know, obviously NFL with Colin Kaepernick, but the NBA right now, you know, both teams are, are taking a knee, whereas in hockey, um, you know, they haven't done that so far. They've, they've done different shows of support but haven't actually gone this step with of taking a knee. So I thought it was, it was very significant. Um, I think it made sense in a lot of ways that, and I think the NHL was likely saving something for the actual playoffs starting rather than the exhibition games. But, um, but yeah, no, I thought, I thought it was a, a great moment and, uh, and, and something that's, that's uh, needed quite frankly. All right, let's talk about those Vancouver Canucks as they are in Edmonton and have been for a few days. They played their one and only exhibition game in a loss to the Winnipeg Jets, who also lost in their first game to Calgary last night. Um, what kind of what did you make of the Canucks in their exhibition game the other night? And how, what do you make of their prospects for the Minnesota Wild? Physically, a much larger team than the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, I... I... I actually thought the, the Canucks against the Jets. They, I thought they played pretty well. They they um, they outshot Winnipeg. They especially in the first period looked like a much much better team. They just couldn't beat Connor Hellebuck, who's been the best goalie in the NHL this yeah. year. Um, so I I actually liked their game against uh, Winnipeg, despite the scoreline. Um, it's going to be very interesting against Minnesota, and I, I think that the big thing that I'm interested in is is the and the discrepancy you spoke about the the size. For me, it's the age. Um, you know, all of you know, virtually all of Minnesota's top players, with the exception of Kevin Fiala, are over the age of thirty. Uh-huh. And and conversely, most of the you know most of Vancouver's top players are in their early twenties or mid twenties. You know, the, we're going to get the, our first look at Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes playing in playoff games. Um, that to me is the, is the most interesting part of of um, of this series. And I think it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a, 
you know, an and it's an interesting contrast between the two teams. Yeah. So the other, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, the, the other thing I was going to point to is the goaltending. Uh, you know, Jacob Markstrom was the Canucks MVP this year. Yes. Um, you know, he's now established himself as, as one of the elite goalies in the NHL. Minnesota, we, we don't know who's going to be starting in net for them. It, it could be uh, Devin Dubnik, who, you know, used to be a Vesna caliber goalie. He's not that anymore. He, he had a uh, poor season this year as well. Or Alex Stalock, who had a, a pretty decent season by his standards, but mm-hmm. he's, a career, he's a career backup. So we don't know what we're going to get from, from, the, from the net in, in uh, Minnesota. And, and um, yeah, that, that's an un- another interesting storyline heading into the series. Yeah, glad to have you with us this morning, Rob, because uh, for the first time since you and I have been doing this in a long time, we get to talk about actual, real, honest-to-goodness sports on TV instead of all the speculation leading up to will they or won't they. Uh, NBA's back in their bubble. Uh, Raptors uh, thumped the L.A. Lakers in their season opener last night, again with uh, uh, the political, social issues taking place, as is usually the case, though, in NBA, as you point out. What I wanted to go to, though, Rob, is baseball and football. Baseball is just hooped. Why? Because they decided not to do the bubble. And you and I talked about this months ago when baseball was considering the Cactus League and the Grapefruit League and putting two bubble cities, one in the East, one in the West, as all the other sports have turned out to do. And baseball is now at the point where the Blue Jays, of course, aren't playing this weekend because one of the the team that they're supposed to play against uh, has COVID casualties, uh, you know, players down, testing positive. uh, And uh, it seems highly unlikely Major League Baseball is going to be able to finish out its season, at least from where I'm sitting. What do you see? Yeah, I mean, the uh, Major League Baseball commissioner, Rob Manfred, is uh, reportedly he essentially warned the players that if you know if this doesn't change, we, they might have to uh, cancel the season. Yeah, um, it, it's a, it's a terrible situation. What's going on in Major League Baseball right now? Um, and and you know, and, and in many ways, it's not surprising. If you you tune into a game, there uh, many players are not wearing masks. Yep, many players are are um, not social distancing. They're they're not taking grand steps to ensure that 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 they're not going to be spreading the virus to each other and and like like you said you know there's no bubble in this so they're almost taking no precautions and having terrible results that's right like, we'll face duh, some... like duh right like yeah. of course so i i don't know what they expected um i don't i don't uh, you know and and <laughs> To top it off, they're playing games in places like Miami mm-hmm. where, where COVID's out of control. COVID so hotspots, like yeah. They took very few precautions, and now they're paying for it. And um, you know, I, I I hope they can they can turn it around. They're essentially you know relying on player players individually, um, you know, taking all the necessary steps to ensure that they stay healthy. And I don't think that's that's enough. <laughs> so. Um, I don't know what the future holds for baseball, but um, you know, I, I, I think both sides are probably kicking themselves right now that they didn't come up with some sort of bubble situation. Or what I would have, what would have made sense to me is I, I know it's typically a long baseball season, but they're only playing sixty games. That's right. That's that's two months, right? Yep. Um, so you could have done a situation where you had the players in a bubble uh, for let's say five weeks at a time, then take a one-week break, allow everyone to go see their families, and then back in the bubble for another five weeks, 
right? Like something like that, you need, or you need to take some precautions. You just can't do what they're doing right now, which is almost nothing. That's right, and it's uh, not looking very good for finishing out the season. We'll have to leave football for another day, Rob. The CFL applied for, uh, well, the feds are considering a short-term loan at high interest rates, assuming input from the provinces, and the CFL is also on uh, eggshells these days. Rob Williams from the Daily Hive. Enjoy the Canucks game tonight. Thanks for this this morning. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, John. It's a nice, warm, sunny day, and the vet is back. It's a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Lauren Edelman from Canada West Veterinary Specialists in East Vancouver. Dr. Edelman, Lauren, good morning. Welcome back. Thank you. Good morning to you, too. That's good to have you with us. And we got a press release, Andrew and Julie and I, a few days ago, talking about COVID-19 and the increasing need for pet insurance. So before we get to pet insurance, I have to ask you the very same first question I asked you last time you were with us, Lauren. Let's talk first and foremost about pets and COVID-19. There was a picture on the internet yesterday of an incredibly handsome German shepherd who was said to have died from COVID-19. He was somewhere here in North America. Uh, Pretty rare, I would assume, but still scared the heck out of a lot of pet owners. Yeah, and I think that's definitely still up for debate. That was one of the first animals in North America that actually tested positive for COVID-19. But the dog also has suspicions for having other illnesses that could have contributed to his death, Uh like, for instance, cancer. Okay. So, you know, I, I think that's definitely something we're going to still learn more information about, but I wouldn't be jumping to any conclusions that that pet di- died directly as a result of their COVID-19. And, and that was your response first time around many weeks ago, you know, to be yeah. able to connect the, to connecting those two dots is simply not doable yet. And with yeah. any luck at all, Lauren never will be, but let's now get back to your point about pet insurance, connect those dots between COVID-19 and an increasing need for pet insurance, please. Yeah, so I guess the first thing to talk about would be, you know, we're all on social media, we're looking around, I feel like every other person I know is getting a puppy during this pandemic. No kidding, and I huh? think that Yeah, I think that just stems from the fact, you know, people are working from home for the foreseeable future, and, you know, it's now a time that people can invest into training puppies and kittens, whether they're adopting them, you know, from the SPCA or from a breeder, mm-hmm. and also just the companionship that, that those animals can provide you at home when you're working. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely been a huge rise in pet adoptions, and um, that's a great thing. We all love animals, and I think it's so wonderful that people are, are exploring that relationship. I do, too. Um, yeah. I mean, I own four animals myself, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm an avid animal lover, of course. So, you know, but with that, I think what people don't realize is that puppies and kittens get sick. It's, it's not just older animals that get sick. I mean, you think about babies, babies get sick all the time in human babies. Mm-hmm. And so, and in puppies and kittens, there are a lot of reasons why they can get sick. Um, you know, infectious diseases, various causes of diarrhea and vomiting are super common in puppies and kittens. Sure. Um, some of which we can try and prevent with vaccination, but others, you know, are just, they're out there. And we all know of that, uh, you know, six month old golden doodle who eats everything in sight. Uh, including things we probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a really common reason as well that, that pets can can come into the hospital because they've eaten something they shouldn't. And sometimes that can be a life-threatening emergency if it causes 
you know, an intestinal obstruction, let's uh, say. Of course, and I suppose the other thing to consider is if you are actually looking at pet insurance as a realistic thing, then the younger the creature in your life the less expensive pet insurance is going to be. So if you are actually going to think about it, think about it while your creature is young because the premiums are so much lower. Absolutely. So, yeah, so the best time to get pet insurance is by far and away. Usually I actually recommend to my friends getting it before you actually pick up the animal. Oh, my, okay. Um, because sometimes you'll take them home and two days later they start showing signs of illness. So. So getting them beforehand is super helpful or at the time of adoption. And like you said, the premiums are going to be far less if you get it then. And also the big thing is pre-existing conditions. Sure. So, you know, if you get it on your two-year-old dog who's already been seen once for coughing, it depending on the pet insurance company and depending on the type of workup that was done, they may never cover coughing for your pet. Um, so getting it before any signs or symptoms, you're guaranteeing that you get the most illnesses covered. Give us a, a for example, a, a, a money figure, if you can, Dr. Edelman, please, for pet insurance for a puppy and for a kitten. I don't imagine they're identical. Yeah, and it depends on, I think there's a few things that it depends on. First of all, it's going to depend on the company that you go with. Of course. Um, some companies actually have like breed restrictions or things that they just absolutely won't cover for a certain breed because they are so common. Mm -hmm. So that can make your premiums higher. But I would say um, it also depends on how much of a deductible you want to pay for each condition. So if you put a $500 deductible, your monthly premium is going to be slightly higher than if you choose no deductible. So I would say the average person puts, you know, a 300 to $500 deductible and for uh, a puppy or kitten, you're probably looking at somewhere around $50 a month, okay. depending on the insurance company. Okay. Now, you can definitely get less than that or more than that, but that really depends on what other options, you know, what do you want in your coverage? Do you want just basic emergency, urgent illness coverage, or do you want some of the more routine things to be covered as well, like dental care, um, you know, vaccinations, your general daily checkup. Sure. Now, you talked about social media right off the top of our conversation this morning. Where does one go to find uh, pet insurance? You go out, you, obviously, you're going to Google pet insurance, but do you buy it ultimately from the same person you buy your house insurance or your car insurance from, or is it a whole other thing? Some of the some of the medical insurance companies have started to offer pet insurance as part of their as part of their plans, but for the most part, these are independent companies. So some you know big names would be True Panion, Pets Plus Us, Pet Secure. Those are some of the most common ones we see coming through our hospital at Canada West. Okay. In terms of companies, um, so you just go on their website, and most of them will offer you a free quote if you tell them you know, about your pet, their age, their breed, um, kind of what type of deductible you want, usually have to uh, adjustable deductible, mm -hmm. and you can get quotes and compare. But I would strongly urge owners to really read the fine print because being on the receiving side of these pet insurance companies, not all pet insurance is created equal. Aha, and you're the one that would know because you're the one that ultimately sees all the pets, uh, regardless of what, who, which insurance company is covering them. And so you're quite familiar with all of the names and uh, the varying degrees of service they can provide. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.